0: And if you have your notebooks from our first week in our series, the name of which you see on the screen, What's the Difference? Many of you were here last week, received a notebook, and we left off on page 11 in your notebooks. Well, this series is What's the Difference? And it is What's the Difference between World Religions and Biblical Christianity, and then also Christian denominations and biblical Christianity. You would think that there would be no difference between Christian denominations and biblical Christianity but we will see beginning in a few weeks that in in fact there is. So we're hoping that this will aid those who are members of our church in having an understanding about the differences between what we believe and various competitors to truth in world in the form of world religions and denominations, but also help those of you who are inquirers, inquirers about what Christianity teaches and how that compares and contrasts to what others uh, claim as, as truth. And we began last week with an introduction to world religions. And in those first several pages of your notebook, we have uh, some content about the development of religion, and we make the case that... Originally, religion was monotheistic, that is, that there was belief in one God rather than polytheistic belief in many gods. And the degeneration of belief from monotheism uh, is detailed in those first few pages. We didn't spend a lot of time on that, but we wanted to make sure you understood that originally there was a world created by God and one God, and there was belief in this one God. And the fact that we have now a multiplicity of religions, and not just a multiplicity of religions, but a multiplicity of of gods in those religions, is something that was not the original design, but something that has developed over time. That's in the first five pages of of your notes. And then beginning on page seven, uh, we looked at Jesus and a competing religion that, particularly in America is something that we need to be aware of and deal with if we are going to look at the tenets of various religions and compare and contrast those to biblical Christianity. And that religion is the religion of tolerance. And I tried to show last week, beginning on page 7, that we have a belief that uh, all beliefs are equally valid. And I tried to make the point that we are blessed in America to live in a pluralistic society, which means everyone is entitled to express his or her beliefs. But that should not then morph into from pluralism, the belief that everybody can express their views, to relativism, which is the idea that all views are equally valid, and yet that's the idea that that many people have. And then in the following pages, we tried to show, as an example, that you cannot reconcile the claims of the Bible and the claims of Islam as it relates to some major teachings of Christianity, including the Trinity, the divinity of of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we dealt with, at the end of our time together last week, the question of whether or not religious truth is, is absolute, which brings us then to page 11 and a look at the first of the competitors to biblical Christianity that we're going to consider, and that is Islam. Now, why Islam? Why would we start with Islam? Well, it is the case... That especially since September 11 of 2001, many of us have been introduced to Islam in ways that we never had before. In fact, I say at the top of page 11, recent events have thrust the religion of Islam into the forefront of Americans' curiosity. Many have, for the first time, been introduced to Islamic beliefs and customs in terms like Quran and mosque and jihad and fatwa and Ramadan and imam and names such as Allah and Muhammad. These have all become commonplace in coffee table and water cooler discussions. Interest in Islam is at an all-time high in America, as evidenced by the numerous books and articles that are being written and devoured by Western readers. The immediate cause of such interest is the actions of a group of terrorists who, in the name of Islam, carried out horrific acts against innocent people. Many Americans wonder whether there is something inherent in Islam that tolerates or, worse, sanctions such atrocities. Now, we left off there last week. And you notice there's a footnote at the end of that sentence, footnote number 10. And down at the bottom, footnote number 10 says, see Appendix A for a look at what the Quran teaches about the use of force against unbelievers. So we're going to take time now to do that. I invite you to turn to Appendix A, which is page 86 at the end of your notebook, page 86. we have an appendix... On page 86, titled, Islam and Terrorism. Top of page 86, Islam, like most religions, has various sects that claim to be its authentic representatives. The Taliban, and you'll remember that uh, the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001 was carried out by a group calling itself the, the Taliban that had taken, uh, taken power in Afghanistan. And the word Taliban, I say in the notes there, literally means students of the Quran. The Taliban and Osama bin Laden have been influenced by a particular strain of Islam known as Wahhabism. Now what is that? Wahhabism is named for the leader of an 18th century reform movement in Arabia. And one commentator, in fact, I have him in our recommended reading, William Corduan wrote the book Neighboring Faiths. But he says this, When Wahhab started to preach against various abuses, he received support from the powerful house of Ibn Saud, who would much later become the royal household of Saudi Arabia, which is named after them. Now let me just stop there. Had you ever, had you ever considered that, that we have a, a country... Uh, named Saudi Arabia, but that it is—it's an Arabic country. It is Arabia, but the Saudi is actually an adjective, a descriptive. It's—it's it's telling you who runs the place, and it's the name of a family, the Saud family. So when it says Saudi, when we say Saudi Arabia, we mean Arabia run by the Sauds. and it's run by this family and its uh, and its its descendants. And so that's what we mean by Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, as some of you know, is a representative of a very strict form of Islam, and in particular, this form of Islam, Wahhabism. And so, I say again, when Wahhab started to preach against the various abuses, he received support from the House of Saud, and together they began to purge Arabia of what they considered to be the various contaminants of Islam. A Wahhabite state was actually implemented with the accession of the Saud family to the newly united kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Non-sanctioned practices were considered idolatrous and punished by the sword. Among the practices originally forbidden by the Wahhabites, though the restrictions are now somewhat eased in Saudi Arabia, were consumption of alcohol and wine, veneration of saints, and playing of music. The majority of Muslims live under less rigid requirements. Thus, Wahhabite Islam is not mainstream. The immediate cause of America's actions, uh, of America's uh, actions, is Osama bin Laden, head of Al Qaeda, and by the way, that means the base, Al Qaeda, the base, the Al Qaeda terrorist network, who's loosely tied to the Wahhabi sect. Bin Laden, a native Saudi, banished from Saudi Arabia, has his roots in Wahhabism, though he's trying to appeal to other Islamic groups as well. Therefore, I say, it's a mistake to automatically associate the actions of al-Qaeda with Islam in general. Now, that's a beginning answer to the question, does Islam sanction and support terrorism? And the terrorism that we know about has come to us through the actions of al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda has its roots in Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabism, that is the state religion of Saudi Arabia, a particular type of, of Islam. So it has its roots there, but it would be unfair and it would be a mistake to say that that then necessarily automatically represents all of, all of Islam. Now, if we stopped there, we could breathe a sigh of relief because we now have a billion, about a billion Muslims worldwide. And we could be relieved to say that of that billion Muslims, then there's a small group that uh, carried out this uh, terror and that uh, sanctions it. And the others do not automatically do so. That's a good thing. However, most Muslims believe, whether you're a Wahhabite or or not, most Muslims believe a narrative, a narrative that involves particularly the United States of America and Israel that I would like to briefly recount for you. And then I would like to show you what the Quran itself says about the use of force to convert those who are non-Muslims. And then you will see that it is not just the Wahhabites and just a very small group of people, but in fact, a much larger group of people who buy into a negative narrative regarding Israel and America and then are able to use the Koran, as we will see, as justification for violence against them. Now, how does, that, how does that go? Bear with me as I go through some historical events that are not in your notes and if you care to, then you can jot down as, as I go. But I, I want to start with a movement at the end of the 19th century known as, known as uh, Zionism. Zionism. And Zionism was a movement that, that, uh, that was devoted to seeing a homeland for the Jews in the Middle East, restored. And this is because of the historical persecution that Jews had experienced over centuries and, and throughout the world, but especially in, in Europe. And so Zionism as a movement agitated for a homeland for, for the Jews. Now, what kind of persecution did the Jews experience uh, around the world, and particularly in Europe? Well, just take Germany as, as an example. Uh, Germany... Has historically been, not just to beat on the Germans, but Germany has historically been a vehemently anti Semitic, anti Jewish uh, culture. In fact, going back to the time of the aforementioned Martin Luther, and Martin Luther for all of his wonderful qualities, and thank God for Martin Luther and what he did for the Protestant Reformation. But I took a class when I was in college, and I took a class on the Holocaust a full semester on the Holocaust. And this class was taught by a Jewish woman whose grandparents had perished in the, in the Holocaust. And she gave some history to uh, the Holocaust, particularly uh, going back to Germany, that was unknown to me prior to that time. And part of that history goes back to uh, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had some, some extremely anti-Semitic mm-hmm. writings, anti-Jewish writings. And it wasn't just Martin Luther, but the Roman Catholic Church in Germany and throughout Europe was predominantly anti-Jewish. Jews were called Christ killers. And so having killed Christ, they were despised by, by Christians. Now, that was, the, that was the teaching. It was a false teaching, a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about the responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ. But nonetheless, it was very prevalent. And it was prevalent in, in Europe, and in particular in in Germany and even otherwise good people like Martin Luther uh, participated in that now if you then fast forward this is why there was a Zionist movement because there were things called pogroms pogroms are like riots that would develop uh, in various places in Europe and they would be these riots against Jews and their homes would be uh, their homes would be stormed their businesses would be closed down and they would be accused of crimes. Jews were mistreated over a long period of time and in various parts of particularly Europe. And The Zionist movement then developed at the end of the, the 19th century and then with World War II and the Holocaust, and particularly then the, the, the actions of not the Nazis in, of all places, where? Germany. There was, uh, there was a drumbeat now for a restored homeland for the Jews, so that they would have a security and a safety that they had not had. That homeland was reestablished in 1948. Israel, established as a nation in 1948. But Israel's restoration as a nation did not meet with universal acclaim uh, throughout the world. Uh, The Arabs in the Middle East uh, were none too happy about the beginnings of this new nation and fledgling nation, Israel. They tried on several occasions to keep it from actually being able to establish itself. They tried that militarily. And one of the most famous military campaigns took place in 1967, just 19 years after Israel was established as a nation. 1967, some of you know your history or are old enough to remember uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. Six-Day War. Now, the Six-Day War is so-called because the war only lasted six days. But the war began because neighboring Arab nations attacked Israel. And Israel responded with force that the world did not know that they had, and certainly these Arab nations did not know that they had. And they were able to win this war and turn back this, uh, this incitement to violence in a short six days. What became clear in that six-day war that Israel had been befriended by a big brother. That namely would be the United States. The United States had been arming Israel. And because of the arms that Israel had from the U.S., they were able to turn back this, this attack. Well, that caused not only now hatred of Israel, but hatred of the U.S. as well as a supporter of, of Israel. 1972, summer of 1972, Munich Anybody know where Munich is? In Germany. And you may remember the Summer Olympics in, in Munich. And there were eleven Israeli athletes that were taken captive and ultimately killed at the Munich Olympics by Palestinian, Palestinian terrorists. These would be Arabs in the land of Israel, in and around the land of Israel, who rejected the legitimacy of Israel being in this homeland. 1973. The Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur, the holiest day in Judaism. Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the day in which even the Israeli military is obligated to, to, to worship, they were attacked. Uh, Israel was attacked. Israel was attacked by Syria, was attacked by Jordan, was attacked by, by Egypt, was attacked on all sides. In the six years since the 1967 Six-Day War, the Arab nations had been supplied by a big brother. Guess who the big brother was at the time? That would be the Soviet Union. I worked with uh, a man. Is Gary here? Gary Hinsman? Gary was here earlier. I don't know if he's here. But Gary and I worked with a man when I was doing computer programming back in the day who immigrated here from the Soviet Union. And in 1973, he was in the uh, the... Russian army and he told us stories about in the dead of night on the Black Sea him being part of a crew that were loading tanks onto ships to go to these Arab countries to be used against Israel in the 73 Yom Kippur war so they were being supported by the Soviet Union the Israelis are being supported by us and this is right in the middle of the height of what we call the Cold War so the stakes are indeed very high It took uh, Israel much longer to be able to turn back this uh, existential threat to their existence. Uh, They were surprised by this attack on the Day of Atonement, and uh, ultimately they were able to do that with with our aid. But the very existence of Israel was in question uh, in the Yom Kippur War. So the hostilities are deep. And in 1978, our then-president Jimmy Carter initiated a peace initiative between Israel and one of those attacking countries, uh, Egypt. And some of you remember in 78 that he was able to effect what's called the Camp David Accords and so-called because they met over a long period of time to negotiate at the presidential retreat in Maryland called Camp David, the Camp David Accords. And this was an astounding agreement that they could come to an agreement between Israel and Egypt with all of the deep hostilities going on it was a major achievement. Carter won the Nobel Peace Prize as, as a result, and deservedly so, in my humble opinion, for, for the work he did with that. Uh, to bring Menachem Begin, who was, uh, who was part of uh, some of the wars that had gone on for Israel, to bring him together with Anwar Sadat of, of Egypt, no one could have imagined. But they did, and there's the famous photo of Carter standing in between them and them shaking hands in the Camp David Accords. Three years later, in 1981, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. He was assassinated by his own people because they hated him. They despised him for making peace with Israel. In the time time since, there have been many attempts by many administrations to see a wider peace between Israel and and the Arab nations. The Clinton administration tried. The first Bush administration uh, tried. Uh, In the Clinton administration, uh, there was something called the Oslo Accords, Uh, At one point during the Clinton administration, the the Palestinians, again, the Arabs living around and formerly in the land that is now Israel, uh, the Palestinians were offered over 95%, over 95% of what it is they demanded in the negotiations, and they walked away from the table. In 2000, uh, the Palestinians instead decided uh, to start, uh, anybody remember this word, the Intifada? to start the intifada, that is the, uh, the, the conflict uh, with Israel by rockets going across the border, rocks going across the, the border. And there's been that kind of agitation ever since. Just a few months ago, we had a flare-up of, of that, so much so that, and let me do a commercial here, uh, we have a Holy Land tour in April of next year. Now, I, I'm planning to go. And I'm, and I'm told it's. Per- I sent you all an email when that was all going down a couple months ago about tourism going on unabated in Israel. And uh, now that has died down anyway. And so as the commercial is, you guys got to sign up for the Holy Land tour, all right? And uh, Sue, Sue Biggs is here. Where's Sue? Um, uh, Sue is over there, Sue. And Sue is planning this for us. So see Sue with any questions about that. We need to do that uh, soon. But that just happened, reared its head just a a few months ago. So there has been this kind of hostility going back a long way. If you were to go back biblically, you would go back to the sons of Abraham and the hostility between the Jews and the Arabs. And Abraham's son given to him miraculously by God, Isaac. Uh, But prior to Isaac being born, you know the narrative that Ishmael was sired uh, in Abraham's impatience with, with God, uh, with his handmaid, Hagar. And, and Ishmael's the father of the Arab nations. You have as a descendant of, uh, of Abraham, the father of the Jews, uh, Isaac. And you, you have these two factions going back millennia. And these most recent events that I've told you about are just a manifestation of that, that hostility. Now, I said that there's a narrative then that most uh, Muslims believe, that makes them, gives them at best an antipathy toward America and at worst a a hostility and sometimes a violent hostility. What is that narrative? The narrative is the Jews should not be there. They should not be in Israel. That's the story. And the reason they're there and the reason we can't get them out of there is because of you guys. And if it were not for your patronage, if it were not for your protection, they, would not only, they wouldn't be there and they certainly would not be able to continue there. We, the Palestine Liberation Organization, anybody ever heard of that? Just think about what that term means, liberating Palestine. Liberating Palestine of, of what? Not what, of who? So when you hear terms like the Iranian president, saying that Israel needs to be obliterated and cast into the sea and wiped off the map. This is simply liberating Palestine. And we would be able to liberate Palestine if it wasn't for you guys. So when Osama bin Laden issued his fatwa, a fatwa is a declaration, and a declaration of sanction against someone or someones, often with penalties uh, uh, attached to it. When Osama bin Laden issued his fatwa that Americans should be killed, which is what he did and what's what precipitated September 11, 2001. If you've ever read that fatwa, and if you haven't, I encourage you to do that because in it, it is filled with America and Israel. That's what what the hatred toward America is about. Now, I'm just giving you here my, with this, I'm giving you my editorial comment, so take it or leave it. But a lot of people have tried to analyze why it is that Muslims hate Americans. And sometimes you will hear of a clash of civilizations. In fact, there's a very good book by that title, Clash of Civilizations. Sometimes you will hear that it's because they hate our way of life. Uh, All of those have truth to them. But in in my opinion, the root cause of their hatred for America is our friendship with Israel and osama bin laden said as much in the fatwa that he that he issued so it is wrong to automatically associate violence with all of islam because of particular sects of islam and yet much of islam hates america particularly because of our relationship to israel now that being the case where in the quran might they find justification then for For violence. And if you look on page 86, the Quran and the use of force. The 114 surahs, that is, chapters or parts of the Quran, are not listed in the chronological order in which Muhammad recited them, but rather they're listed in the order of length from the longest to the shortest. So the Quran is laid out that way. The longest chapters, surahs, are at the beginning, and then the shortest are, are at the end. That's how it's laid out, longest to shortest. But if one places the passages in chronological order, an interesting pattern emerges that corresponds to the circumstances in which Muhammad found himself. The Kaaba, a rectangular building in the city of Mecca, contained many idols and was the center of worship for the pagan Arabs at the time of Muhammad. Arabs from all over Arabia came to Mecca for an annual pilgrimage to worship these idols. Muhammad began preaching Islam in 610 A.D. when he was still living in Mecca. Now, let me just stop there. The 610 A.D. is important. 610 A.D. is Latin, Anno, Domini, not, you know, we have, we have B.C. Now we've got, what, C, uh, B.C.E., before the Common Era. Uh, but it used to be B.C., before Christ. And then people read A.D. and they go after death. Well, that's not, <laughs> you know, he died at around 33, so you'd have a missing several decades there. But but A.D. is from Latin, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord and the year that Christ was, was born. And our calendar, of course, goes from that. So here's, here's 610 years after Christ was born that Muhammad uh, begins his preaching career. Now, that's important because he's, we saw last week that he makes statements about Christianity, and he makes statements about what Christianity is supposed to mean. But remember now, he's coming six centuries after, after Christ. The Koran comes well after, after the Bible, and that will become important as we compare and contrast the beliefs of Christianity and Islam. His fellow tribesmen became increasingly angry because of his condemnation of their idolatry. 90 of the 114 surahs originated during the 13 years he continued living in Mecca. These surahs contain no instructions about fighting in spite of the severe persecution and the beatings and the expulsion from their homes and death threats to which his small band of followers were subjected. The last 24 surahs are from the time after 622, When Muhammad and his followers migrated to Medina to escape from the persecution in Mecca, there Muhammad was made political leader of the city and his followers increased significantly. The teaching about jihad or fighting in the way of Allah began to develop in these Medinan surahs. One commentator has placed the surahs of the Quran into four developmental stages. Now for me, this is extremely helpful to see that the Quran is laid out, not chronologically, but laid out from longest to shortest, but if you then lay out the writings of the Quran in chronological order now, and you place those in terms of where Muhammad was and how much power he had at the time, you see an interesting pattern emerge. There were times, certainly at the beginning, when Muhammad began to preach that he was in the vast minority. In fact, we're going to see later that it was just him and his wife. And then he began slowly to amass some followers, but he's preaching against idolatry, and the idolaters in Mecca, in effect, kicked him out and his followers, and they went to Medina. But in Medina, he gained power. As time went on, he gained more power, and the verses, the passages you see in the Quran regarding jihad, regarding fighting, correspond to the circumstances of Muhammad's life. So stage one. While he's in Mecca, the Quran teaches no retaliation. So, for example, Surah 73, Surah 52, 109, be patient and bear with those who deny the truth. Surah 52, leave them alone and wait in patience for the Lord to punish them. Surah 109, tell unbelievers, you have your religion and I have mine. So live and let live. Now, this begins to answer a question that perhaps some of you have had. As you've watched CNN, if you make the mistake of doing that, or MSNBC, Whoa. watch CNN. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> but, you know, if you watch TV and you, and, you, and you see a Muslim representative, you will often hear them say something like, uh, the Koran teaches peace toward unbelievers. Non-retaliation. They can cite passages like this rightly and honestly. There are these passages. And so you're confused because on the one hand, you've got these guys out there committing these violent acts, and on the other hand, you've got these peaceful passages in the, in the Quran. So how do you, how do you uh, merge those together? Well, that's stage one. Stage two, his first instruction in Medina. Now he is relocated, moved from Mecca to Medina. And defensive fighting is permitted. So in Surah 22, permission is given to go to war to defend themselves. Bottom of page 87, again in Surah 22, rewards are given for those who die in in jihad. But then there's a third stage. Remember, the second stage is in Medina and defensive fighting is permitted. Basically, self-defense is permitted, but then that's revised in Medina. And defensive fighting is not just permitted, it's commanded. Surah number 2 and verses 190 to 194, fight defensively against an attack from fellow Arab Meccan opponents until persecution is stopped and Islam is established. So you've got these first three stages, and and so far fairly benign. Uh, The first stage is non-retaliation. Second stage is permit defensive fighting. Third stage is to command defensive fighting. But notice this is all defensive. It's the fourth stage that's most interesting. And it occurs after conquering Mecca. So we will see in Muhammad's career that he amassed power. We've already seen he became the political leader in Medina. He amassed power and was able to return to Mecca now as a powerful force and to take over the very Mecca that he was chased out of. And you have verses in the Quran that are written at that time. After conquering Mecca, an offensive war is commanded to kill the pagans and humble the Christians and Jews. And so Surah 9, fight against Jews and Christians until they are subdued because God's curse is on them. Pagans who accept Islam become brother Muslims. Fight those who break their agreements. God will punish them by your hands. This is how then in the Quran, you can have folks cite one part of it and say Islam is a peaceful religion and another part of it to show that jihad is commanded against those who are infidels, unbelievers. And it corresponds to the circumstances in which Muhammad found himself, whether or not he was a persecuted minority or whether he was a a powerful authority. When he was a powerful authority in Mecca, this is what was... Uh, Commanded, and this is precisely what was carried out. Muhammad himself led violent wars against unbelievers. So the idea that so many of our politicians—and I understand the dilemma that they're in—but presidents, George W. Bush now, uh, and now our current president—they try to make public statements, but uh, to appease uh, Muslims, but also appease Americans and to keep uh, violence and, and hatred from being fomented. And again, I appreciate that dilemma, but some of what is said is simply untrue. Uh, President George W. Bush, in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, said, quote, Islam means peace. Uh, the word Islam doesn't mean peace. And there are, uh, there are significant sections of the Koran that don't teach peace against infidels and those who who do not believe. We will see what Islam means, but it does not mean, mean peace. And so there's been that kind of disinformation. It's important for us just as citizens, but then most importantly as Christians, to understand then what those who are rivals to truth believe, and particularly in the day in which we live. Now, if you look on page 89, it's important to understand that there is no separation of church and state in Islam. So when you talk to a Muslim person, it is very hard for them to, uh, unless they're someone who's been thoroughly Americanized with the idea of church and state, but uh, if, it's, if it's someone who has ties to uh, Arab countries, if it's someone who hasn't been here for a significant period of time, uh, they don't understand separation of church and state. So when they think of America, there is no separation of America's religion and what America does. And America's religion to them is Christianity. Now, most of us here don't think that. I certainly don't think that. I don't think that America is a Christian nation. If America was a Christian nation, America would be completely different than it is. Our culture would be completely different than it is. Uh, and our Constitution has its First Amendment that uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and that establishes a a cherished principle of separation of of church and state. Now, let me just stop for a moment. That's not the same as separation of religion from politics. Those are not the same thing. Uh, Your religion follows you. Your religion is what you believe, and your religion follows you everywhere you go, including politics. But but the, but the institutional separation of church and state is something our Constitution teaches. More importantly, I think Jesus taught it when he said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. But Islam knows no such thing. So when they think of America, they think of Christianity. And they think American foreign policy is Christian foreign policy. I've had many discussions with Muslim friends, again going back to my... Computer programming days, I had a good friend, Syed Hoda. Uh, He still corresponds with me from time to time, but he uh, originally was from Pakistan. And when I would talk to him about America and I would talk to him about foreign policy and I would talk to him about Israel and all the things that were were going on in the world, it, it was clear that he could not get his mind around the idea that America is not Christianity because he's from Pakistan. Do you know what the capital of Pakistan is? Islamabad okay (laughs) I mean the the government and the and the religion are fused and how does that matter well here's how on page 89 Americans are accustomed to a separation of the secular and the sacred however no such distinction exists in Islam because Islam is a holistic religion integrating all aspects of life it follows that a reform movement predicated on religion necessarily confronts the social economic political realities of the society in which it develops. Muslim societies, however, have emerged from colonialism and neo-colonialism and are seeking to develop free from certain Western influences which may corrupt or subvert basic Islamic values. Furthermore, in Islam there's no division or distinction between what in the West is called church and state. In fact, Westerners refer to the Islamic form of government as a theocracy. Thus, contemporary political religious groups focus on social, political, and economic aspects of Muslim societies. They oppose the secular state and instead call for the establishment of a Muslim, a Muslim state. And This is why you will hear Muslims speak of infidels like American soldiers being in, quote, Muslim lands. Because this is, this is not only our religion, this is our state, This is our religious state. And you infidels have come and set up bases in in Muslim lands. And this is why now we are fighting, as I speak, we are fighting against ISIS or ISIL. And this is the establishment of an Islamic state. So, as we look at the contemporary manifestations of of Islam and what has brought this to the attention of Americans, yes, it is a small group of, of terrorists but it's a small group of terrorists who have been following a narrative, a narrative that many Muslims adhere to that is anti-Israel and is anti-America because of our relationship to to Israel. Now, if you turn back to page 11, page 11, we want to understand the development of, of Islam, We'll begin that today, and then we'll continue that uh, next week. So middle of that uh, second paragraph, top of page 11, many Americans wonder whether there is something inherent in Islam that tolerates or worse, sanctions such atrocities. And Christians wonder how Islam relates to Christianity, from where and through whom did Islam originate. Since Islam conflicts with Christianity regarding significant doctrines, we saw that last week, then who's right? And how can we know? To answer these questions requires we know something about the history of of Islam. So let's, in the five minutes we have remaining, look at some history of Islam and we'll continue that so that we can compare it to what Christianity teaches uh, next week. Muhammad was born, we say in the middle of page 11, in 570 A.D. in the vicinity of, of Mecca. The religion of the time was a mixture of polytheism and animism. Mecca was a center of this religion and the focal point of pilgrims visiting its many idols and shrines. The first thing that greeted a pilgrim entering Mecca was a statue of God's three sensuous appearing daughters. A highlight of any visit to Mecca was a cube-shaped shrine called the Kaaba, which means cube, dedicated to the main god of this shrine, Hubal. Built into the side of the Kaaba was a meteorite that was considered holy because it had fallen from heaven. There were many other temples and holy sites, including the sacred well, Zamzam. Religious pilgrimages made Mecca a prosperous city. Now, that's where Muhammad then uh, was, was born, and that is the religious scene into which he was born. But then we say he was orphaned at age six and raised by his uncle. Having received little education, he subsisted as a camel driver. He eventually came into the employ of a wealthy widow, Khadijah, to whom he was later married. His prophetic career began, as we've already seen, in 610, while he was meditating in a cave located just outside Mecca. The angel Gabriel spoke to him and said, recite, and that's where the word Koran comes from. It means recite or read. Converts to Muhammad's teaching were slow in coming at first. Kadia believed him immediately, and others were skept- but others were skeptical at best. Many people were hostile or derisive. Muhammad's revelatory experiences continued as they would throughout his life, not on a regular basis, but from time to time. Eventually, he gained a small group of followers, and after about 10 years, the group had become fairly sizable, numbering in the thousands. Muhammad's followers referred to their belief as Islam, and Islam means submission to God, not peace. It means submission to God. Now, with the no separation of church and state and all of that, you can, do, you can just put that together then. If Islam means submission to God, and there is no such thing as separation of church and state, that also means submission to the government that is run by Islam. They came to be identified as Muslims, those who submit to God. Eventually, Muhammad's group of followers grew so large that the city fathers in Mecca found their presence undesirable. After all, nothing ruins the business of idol worship like the incessant claim that there's only one God. So this made the city fathers angry with Muhammad, and that is why he ended up leaving Mecca and going to Medina for a period of time, and then coming back later victorious into into Mecca. Now, we have the same kind of thing recorded in the New Testament, Acts chapter 19, where the preaching of Paul so upset the city of Ephesus that there was a riot in Ephesus. And it was because he was upsetting the sale of uh, trinkets to uh, the idols in Ephesus, in particular the uh, goddess Diana, and so people came into the streets. A riot was fomented by some of the uh, trinket makers uh, in Ephesus, and uh, Paul uh, had to be uh, had to uh, was was beaten, and uh, and persecuted in Ephesus because of his preaching. A persecution escalated until 622. And Muhammad and a group of his followers fled Mecca for Medina. The flight from Mecca is called the Hijra, which means flight, and it's used as the beginning of the Islamic calendar. For at this point, an independent Muslim community was born. So uh, I should have done the math before I come here, but if you take 2014 and you subtract 622, you have what the Muslim year is uh, today. So, so year zero in Islam is 622. And that's because of this event of Muhammad leaving Mecca and going to Medina and establishing this first Muslim community uh, occurred then. Muhammad and his followers were well received in Medina, and in fact, he was put in charge of the town with the responsibility of re- resolving certain disputes. He made a special pact mm-hmm. with the Jewish community in Medina, recognizing that Jews were not expected to become Muslims. Unfortunately, the relationship broke down when some Jews attempted to assassinate Muhammad, and he ordered the execution of hundreds of Jews. We will pick it up then Uh, uh, from there. uh, We will look at Islam after Muhammad. You see at the bottom of page 12, we'll look at some of the beliefs of Islam. And then most important, we will try to compare and contrast what Islam believes and teaches and practices to that of biblical Christianity. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the blessing of this day to be together as your people on the Lord's Day as we remember that Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, we thank you that we serve a risen Lord. And we thank you that you are the Lord, that you are the one living and true God, and that you have displayed your uniqueness uh, in history, that you have worked in the affairs of men, that you have stepped into history in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has uh, conquered death by his rising from the dead. And so we thank you that he is our Lord and he is our Savior and that you have written to us clearly about him in in your word. And yet, Lord, there are many, many, most who do not believe in the Lord Jesus. And we desire to carry out the mission that you have given us to preach your gospel, to preach the good news, and to see folks changed from the inside out by the power of the gospel. So help us to be aware of the rival claims to truth that exist in our day. Help us to be wise as as serpents and harmless as doves as we go into the world and seek to represent Christ. Help us to do that this week. We ask you, Lord, to offer us open open doors of opportunity to give your word. We ask you to grant us safety, and we ask you to bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.